1: Welcome to New Books and Performing Arts, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Ryan Donovan, assistant professor of theater studies at Duke University and the author of Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity. The book was published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Good morning, Ryan. How are you today? Great. How are you? Great. Great. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about this uh, exciting new book. Um, I was hoping to start. You could tell us a little bit about your background and your training.
0: Well, in terms of this book, actually, it comes from my years of experience as a professional dancer, which is uh, what I was doing before I started grad school. And I turned 30 and I thought, okay, what else does life have in store for me? Let me get a PhD because I like picking careers that uh, require long, intense periods of training for few job opportunities. Um, So I I went to grad school and did my PhD in theater and performance at the CUNY Graduate Center. And while I was there, I, I honestly, I wasn't sure what I was gonna study at first because I was coming back into the academy after about a decade away and I knew that I wanted to teach and to write, but I didn't know that I, at that point, I didn't know that I could focus on musical theater as an object of study. And so I was pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised when I discovered that there was this field that at that point was about 10 or 15 years old and growing and uh, had, uh, you know, peers interested in the same kinds of questions that I was interested in. So, you know, writing this book, which was based on my PhD dissertation, was the ideal way for me to combine my practice background and all of that experience with the tools that I learned in graduate school.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more, being both a a practitioner and a scholar, how um, your experience in the industry, your experience training... Um, your experience maintaining a certain Broadway body, as you say, um, informed your thinking and your study of Broadway bodies?
0: I guess the irony is that when I was a performer, I never had anything close to the Broadway body. <laughs> I mean, I used to go before ballet class, I would, there was a donut cart outside of uh, outside of the studio, and I would get donuts every day before class. So like, <laughs> you know, and then I wondered why, why aren't I getting casts in these dance parts? Um, And, you know, so years later, I kind of understood a lot more about how the industry worked. And now I kind of, I'm no longer part of the industry. So I kind of see myself as an insider outsider, uh, you know, to borrow from ethnography uh, because I, I had all of this personal experience and I, you know, I. part, you know, all joking aside about donuts, I still did book a few jobs Mm -hmm. here and there and was a member of Actors' Equity. And um, I, uh, you know, I drew on all of that as I was writing this book and thinking about um, what I knew to be true from having been in the industry. And so part of what I was really aiming to do in this book is to to bring all of that and bring all of that to bear and make it part of the historical record. So there's a lot in the industry that is accepted as as just the norm and the unquestioned norm, in fact. And so the book really began with examining what are these unquestioned norms and why, why might they be there and what are the factors at play and how do they persist to this day, and in some cases they persist and in others they have changed a little bit. So, uh, you know, thinking about all of the different kind of complex factors that go into casting and uh, and the fact that it's always going to be a subjective process. So how uh, to acknowledge that there are multiple competing truths at play in this process was a real challenge and um intellectually stimulating part of writing this book
1: yeah i was as i was reading it i was thinking like what an amazing topic right because bodies obviously are central to the broadway experience we always hear about the wear and tear that um, performers go through how they're saving their voices um you know, the injuries that performers experience on shows like Cats and Starlight Express and Spider Man Turn Off the Dark, like we're constantly being reminded of the effect it has on bodies and the sense that, um, you know, especially cr- performers who are in shows for the long term, you know, for 20 years, and how do they maintain and endure and persevere when they're doing eight shows a week, right? Um, so it's such an exciting topic. And so much of musical theater studies is, you know, textual analysis, right? Or archival research. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna ask you a, a dissertation committee question, which is how do we get to Broadway bodies? How do we how do we study this? And, and what methods did you find useful in your own study?
0: I was always really interested in doing archival research for this project. And so it, it began there. And so I went to various archives for this from, the Library of Congress to the Lincoln Center Library for the Perform- New York Performing Arts uh, Library at Lincoln Center, Beinecke at Yale. And um, so I combined all of that, the insights from the archive with interviews that I was able to secure. And then in, in other instances, there, were, there are many interviews that I, I quote in the book uh, that were done at the time of production uh, of the shows that I'm writing about, because I was really interested in, as a, methodologically, uh, tracking the, the uh, the ways that language and norms evolve. And so i wanted to really cite what people said at the time. Um, in particular, th- this really comes to bear in the shows from the 1980s in the book, and uh, and the the ways that we accepted uh, how the press spoke about size, for instance, when I read sections from that uh, aloud, people gasp at the language that was just so common then. And uh, the same goes for the ways that uh, LGBTQ plus folks were openly denigrated in the press in the 1970s and 80s. So, that's that's really how I began this dissertation project, but actually, it, it, in some ways, the the seeds of it were planted earlier, because in grad school, you know, you have to take, in whatever your field is, you're likely to have to take an intro to theory course. And I took that course, and I just wasn't finding anything that really made sense to me. And, you know, this was, it was kind of a gloss on all of the the, the quote, unquote, high theory And I realized later that I was really drawn to maybe what might be considered the low theory because it was about the body. And uh, so I discovered in one course that I could apply insights from disability studies to theater and fat studies to theater. And so that's really where it all began for me before I went to the archive was, was immersing myself in those two fields in particular. And they really spoke to me uh, deeply because I, of my experience as a, as a performer and that I approach things through the body first. And so once I found those, I thought, oh, uh, this is a conversation that I want to be a part of.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is how it lays bare all this discourse that's just so unapologetically homophobic, fatphobic. Um, in an industry that we often associate with being LGBT friendly, inclusive, um, you know, they're not Hollywood. They're not sports, right? In theater, everyone's welcome. And then you read this and you're like, my God. And in major presses and major junkets, right? It's it's not like these were bloggers in the dark corners of the internet. These were the leading voices in the theater community often. Right. And what really was kind of shocking to me as I
0: as I dug deeper into this was that sometimes those voices were coming from inside certain productions and so in the in the chapter on dream girls for instance you can see that I, I write about one of the actors who was the replacement in it and how she gave an interview in TV uh, on a local TV station in LA and about two weeks later two months later she's interviewed in uh, local press for the Productions moved to San Francisco, telling a completely opposite story than the one she told on TV in LA, and it's clear that the the PR people for the show and the creative team and producers had decided that she needed to change the narrative. And so, you know, there's that. And then in the in the chapters on La Caja Fall, I'm uh, I, I chart how you know, the show was initially cast with two straight actors playing these these this gay couple and in 1983, and then when the show was revived with gay actors in the early 2000s, there was no mention of, of the fact that they had historically for the first time on Broadway, two gay actors, two out gay actors playing these parts. But then when it was re- revived again, all of in 2012 with two straight actors, all of the press was all over the fact that, oh, these brave straight actors are playing gay, you know? So, uh, and in part that is determined by a show's publicity team and its producers. So I, I was really drawn to these, these paradoxes of, uh, of inclusion and exclusion. And, you know, whenever we're having the conversation about inclusion, it's implicitly acknowledging that exclusion has, has mm-hmm. or is taking place, you know? Um, and so I was drawn to those, those contradictions within the industry.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about bringing together these various fields? You mentioned fad studies and disability studies, obviously there's queer studies here musical theater studies, um, and they all kind of come together under this theme of of embodiment, but, um, I'm just curious about kind of um, what you learned in kind of putting them in conversation with one another.
0: One of the ways that they all spoke to me in a in a cohesive way was that you know in terms of fat studies, disability studies, and queer studies, we're we're all talking about identities and bodies that are stigmatized and. One of the upsetting things, uh, one and one of the harder parts of the book uh, is looking back at how all of those identities were stigmatized by eugenicists in the early twentieth century. So we have these histories of of these bodies being uh, that eugenicists sought to eradicate, and you know, I, I was in a way, you know, without underlining that too much in the book, I was. Thinking about then how how did how does how do the stigmas that emerge from that era impact who we see on stage today? And you know, of course, I'm not claiming that Broadway casting is is eugenicist. Um, you know, it's nobody is drawing from that ideology um, on purpose anyway. And I you know I don't think people really are. I, one of the things I learned in in writing the book actually was how uh, how little power. Casting directors actually have. I mean, and they they want to make the industry more inclusive, and it's often the creative team or the producer who's the barrier to that, not so much the casting personnel. But so I was I was really into making connections among these fields, and one of the ways that I I did that was looking back at um, the sociologist Irving Goffman's famous book Stigma, and you know, looking at how the social construction of the norm is still pretty much the same uh, in U.S. in the U.S. as when he wrote that book, and uh, you know, so the the book that I was interested in writing and researching was about bodies that challenge or subvert that norm, and feel and finding academic fields that also do that, and so that's how I landed on those three fields.
1: I was hoping we could talk more about casting, right, because it's such an important industry practice. And um, in my home field of film and media studies, there's been exciting work in recent years as well. But I think it really brings to the forefront these tensions between Broadway as an art form and Broadway as a business. So can you talk more about focusing on casting and not just on stage representation or the characters that are being written in these shows?
0: Right. Uh, you know, to your earlier point about how a lot of musical theater studies is uh, drawn to textual uh, analysis, I was never really drawn to that. Uh, and I, I love reading it, and I love when somebody's really amazing at that. I felt like I could bring other things to the table. And in particular, one of those things was looking at casting as a labor practice, and it's a necessary evil. Uh, we've got the system that kind of works right now. Um, you know, you, you have to figure out a way to to narrow down the pool of hopefuls because there are always more actors willing to be in something than there are parts available. And so you know, Actors' Equity, the union has set up procedures to to try to, make casting be more inclusive and yet they're still at the mercy of producers so um that is that's really how i landed on casting and one of the things that i I think is interesting about casting is that it's it as i mentioned before it's always going to be a subjective process and i think that's why it's exciting and so while i acknowledge that it's always going to be subjective. What I am arguing in the book is that it doesn't have to be discriminatory at the same time as it is subjective. And so, you know, I I think we see these casting breakdowns that describe body size, shape, um, height. I mean, for for me, I, I write in the introduction about Lying about my height as a dancer because uh, so many shows had height requirements and you know precluded me for I was never tall enough for Susan Stroman shows for instance um, I don't know that like the producers needed male dancers to be five eleven or above but she thought they did so uh, <laughs> you know I, I'm interested in thinking about uh, ways of that people can make casting less discriminatory while still acknowledging that it is. Uh, It's a personal process for the for the director and choreographer.
1: And we've talked about this already, but um, I'm hoping we can kind of cycle back to it now in light of those comments, which is that, you know, Broadway bodies draws attention to arguably like one of the defining tensions of Broadway right, which is on the one hand, it seems far more inclusive than other cultural industries because it's so indebted to the labor of people of color of queer folks. Um, And on the other hand, it's remains so inaccessible financially, physically. geographically, right? I mean, sometimes I find myself as an able-bodied person going to the theater and I'm like, how do people sit in these chairs or my knees are up to my chest? And what does this do for people who use wheelchairs or who are older and have less mobility, right? Um, So I'm curious if you talk a little bit more about how does this culture of inclusion that Broadway seems to be selling us also kind of get, or how's it undergirded by this kind of conformity and this reticence towards change?
0: Yeah. I, you know, in the book I mostly write about what happens on stage, but I think this is an important point about the the off-stage dynamics or the, you know, the front of house for, for audience members. Of course, it's financially inaccessible to the vast majority of people. It's a luxury product at this point to to attend a Broadway show or a luxury experience. And you know, historically, you know, then the in the period after World War II, I, I think I just read yesterday that ticket prices uh, doubled during that era or maybe went up 40%, but it was still affordable for middle-class audiences then. And that's no longer the case. So it's both inaccessible, as you point out, geographically, financially, but also for uh, disabled folks, it is uh, uncomfortable if it impossible to attend many, many of these Broadway theaters, which were built mostly around a century ago, and some a a little bit before that, without a thought for accessibility. And this extends to the back of the house too, for performers, Uh, all of these theaters have dressing rooms that are accessed by stairs, and few of them have elevators for performers to get up to their dressing room from the stage. And so, the industry is not set up to to be uh, to be accessible, really. And as you mentioned, I mean, for wheelchair users, or for deaf and hard of hearing audience members, or for low vision, I mean, it, it's it's an afterthought in many instances. Or maybe they will producers will offer a performance once every six weeks that is sensory friendly or has sign interpretation and. You know, if there is an ASL interpreter, often there's only one interpreter who has to play all of the parts and translate the, the language of the show into ASL. And so that's not really so inclusive because it's, a, it's kind of a separate, separate and unequal
1: experience. Yeah, so thank you. I mean, I, I guess my question is a little unfair. I was thinking about the kind of the broad scope, but let's go back to the stage, right? And, um, you know, your, your study focuses primarily on, um, I, I would say, since a chorus line, right? So, yeah. Um, and and so it was in thinking, making me think like, oh, like, what would it mean to rewrite the entire history of Broadway or to rethink, you know, stars through this question too, right? Um, and so it, in my casual Googling, I, I looked up, you know, the greatest Broadway performers and divas of all time. And what struck me immediately is how many of them were white, cisgender, slender. Um, in fact, the only performer on that list who I would associate as being one um, a performer known for their, their size was Barbara Cook. And of course, that's more so later in her career when she transitioned primarily to cabaret performances, yeah. right? Um, so I guess my, my question in a very long way is how might this attitude towards bodies reshape other histories that could be written or how has Broadway changed over time and its attitude to- towards bodies that's two questions so pick one yeah. or do both <laughs> <laughs> um, I think in terms of how it's changed we're starting to see
0: we're, uh, we're starting to see different bodies on stage than uh, more regularly than we used to see I think and we can this is why I mean I purposely say C because I, I wanted to write about what's visible to audiences in many instances, although sexuality isn't always visible, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but so shows like A Strange Loop that um, you know are about a fat black queer guy, and you know, to that uh, to that matter, for that matter, also Fat Ham that's coming to Broadway this this spring. Um, but also, you, you know, you're starting to see ensembles that aren't just full of the quote unquote, Broadway body type. And uh, so, the, but like with other, as, as with the earlier shows where there might've been one black chorus member or one Asian American chorus member or a Latinx member of the chorus. Now we're starting to see that with Uh, Size and with disability, in some in in rare cases, still. But uh, so things are slowly changing. And um, I think part of why I focus on casting rather than dramaturgy or, you know, textual analysis is because that stuff is really slow to happen in, in theater. Theater is a slow art form takes a long time to write a musical these days to, to get it produced, uh, it's a series of workshops, it's an, maybe an out-of-town tryout or a regional production. And casting is actually a, a much faster process. So casting is one site where we can actually see immediate changes. And that was interesting to me and also interesting in that for consideration of well, why haven't we seen this sooner? So yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think Broadway is changing. It's maybe not fast enough for for other, for some people and maybe it's too fast for others in in some regards, but I, I do see that it is it's attempting to change anyway and, and to be more inclusive. So that and that's a that's a change really in the last couple of years since Broadway reopened, following its pandemic-enforced shutdown. So, you know, I think this is we can look at this as one of the good things that came out of the, the reckoning that the industry went through during COVID.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of my own theater going in the last year as I'm trying to catch up for all the shows I didn't get to see during the pandemic, or I should say that the heyday of the pandemic, in many ways, we're still living through the pandemic, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and going to see a show like N Juliet*, right, where I was really struck by the diversity of bodies on stage um, in the ensemble, right? Compared to say, you know, a show like Chicago, which traditionally has had, I think we would agree, maybe a more um, uniform conformed um, body type, right? So there seems to be signs of progress, but it it always seems to ebb and flow with Broadway, right? Like every time there's a moment of progress, there also seems to be an incident like, you know, the replacement of Josh Groban in, Natasha and Pierre, where questions of race and and who should play this part get called in um, and brought to the fore, or, um, you know, concerns over Beanie Feldstein or Leah Michelle as Fanny Bryce, and, you know, which is the decision that's best for reflecting a commitment to social justice, and which is the decision that's going to sell tickets, right? Um, Do you have any thoughts over these loose ramblings I'm offering?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have a couple thoughts. First, uh, Broadway is is about real estate. Uh, It's owned, you know, the theaters are owned by four corporations, uh, apart from the couple that are, are the three or four that are nonprofit houses. And so, you know, you can think of it as, as those corporations are the landlords and Broadway shows are the tenants. And in the, the interest of the landlords is finding somebody to pay the most rent for the longest amount of time. And so, in the, the instances of kind of casting controversies that you mentioned uh, with uh, Beanie being replaced by Leah and uh, the, the, the kerfuffle around uh, Mandy Patinkin coming in to quote unquote, save the great comet and then backing out because of the optics. Um, you know, Broadway relies on a star system and stars are producers best bets to sell tickets. So that's where the producers are almost always going to land. And then I think the other point that I want to make is that, you know, in the book, I'm arguing, you know, that the Broadway body has led to uh, this kind of enforced conformity in many instances. I just want to make clear, though, that because sometimes I see this point get misinterpreted as me saying that this is always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on context. I don't think anything is all good or all bad. And I, I think that, you know, there's, there's room, there should be room for all kinds of shows and all kinds of casting on Broadway. And so sure, sometimes I love to go see a show like Chicago that celebrates this, this body type. Uh, but I don't only want to see that. And I think that's kind of, that's the distinction I, I I'm making in the book is that for far too long, we've only seen that. And so I, I don't think that we need to throw it out in the name of um, social change. People should be able to look how they want to look is is the bigger point. So, you know, I I see myself as in the book as contributing to more of the discourse around body neutrality rather than body positivity. Of course I support, you know, body positivity but I think really the 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 aim for my work is to to see uh, that there's kind of a a neutralizing of the stigma attached to different kind of body types. And so, for instance, drawing from fat studies to use the word fat as as a descriptor rather than, you know, bend ourselves into pretzels trying to come up with euphemisms. Um, So... Uh, you know, nothing, I I think we have to move a little bit beyond the frame of good, bad, and to, in order to, to actually talk about what's happening openly.
1: Yeah, I think of um, scholars like Christine Gledhill and like pleasurable negotiation or um, uh, Stacey Wolf on dissonant pleasures, right, and realizing that there's going to be these elements in which we're never going to be completely satisfied, but you know that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it, and that doesn't mean that progress can't be made. Still, so I, I realize we've we, uh, I've committed a bit of a cardinal sin, which is we've been talking about uh, Broadway body, but we actually haven't laid out clearly how you are defining this this term in your work. And I was hoping you could could offer us kind of a, a concise preview of what this concept means for you, um, and in particular how you link it to neoliberalism, which I think was a, an interesting. Um, theoretical move in your work?
0: I'm defining the Broadway body as the, I should pull out the back of the book here to read what I wrote for that. Um, <laughs> the hyper hyper fit, exceptionally able, uh, triple threat performer who I think I, I kind of made a joke that this is the, the performer who, uh, you know, does their workout with their trainer and then goes to do their matinee of Hamilton and uh, then goes on for the lead that night. Um, their matinee in the ensemble and then plays the lead that night. So it's this performer whose whose body can do anything. And they're usually tall, uh, uh, they're conventionally attractive and, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, it's it became the the ideal body for Broadway musicals over the course of uh, the last few decades. and in in looking into it, I found all of these uh, examples where um, performers, I think inadvertently contributed to this through uh, associating themselves with exercise and fitness. And actually the first instance I found of of um, of the term Broadway body was from a, a workout tape that was put out by original West Side Story star carol lawrence in the 1980s which was part of this you know bigger fitness trend in the 1970s and 80s with celebrities like jane fonda associating themselves with with fitness and uh, on broadway anne Ranking made a book called the dancer's workout and even angela lansbury may she rest in peace uh, did this kind of iconic uh, low impact workout that uh, you should all check out on YouTube just to see it. So it's so camp, um, but you know this is and, and so to your question about how this connects to the neoliberal body is that uh, there's a few ways. One is that it was the consolidation of all of these skills and this look in one performer's body. So before the before West Side Story, which was in 1957 most musicals, most Broadway musicals were cast with separate singing and dancing ensembles. So let's say there would have been 14 members in the singing chorus of Oklahoma and 14 dancing members in the chorus of Oklahoma. And so the dancers would come out and dance and the singers would just stand there in the back and sing kind of like um, musical wallpaper. And um, West Side Story was the show, it wasn't the first show to cast one ensemble of just singer-dancers but it was the the one that really shifted the paradigm and it took about a dozen years for that to really catch on and by the time of Pippin in 1972 Bob Fosse is also using a, a similar tactic in casting these triple threat performers who sing and dance and act and cover all of the leads and uh, so that you know the consolidation of all of these skills into one body uh, saved producers money. It made shows more profitable. and it also made them uh, more profitable because they were more replicable. And, and this is where I'm talking about a chorus line in the book and the fact that it's runaway success meant that producers had this opportunity to capitalize on that by opening, um, The show, uh, three companies simultaneously. So in 1976, they were rehearsing three companies at once uh, one to open the show uh, on Broadway with a new company, one to go to uh, LA, and then I I think the third was London. And so they were, you know, the the fact that they were doing this all at once, all together, it kind of made it like this neoliberal machine that, uh, you know, put these bodies to work. And um, I also, uh, in the book, I talk about how a Broadway show eight times a week uh, is, is kind of a, um, is, it's repetitive labor. You're, as we, you were mentioning before about injuries and, uh, you know, dancers and performers in Broadway shows are at risk for injury because they are doing the same thing eight times a week And um, you know, that creates certain strengths, but also I think exposes some weaknesses in the body too. So uh, all of this is coupled in with this fitness culture that I was mentioning that pressures all Americans to be thin and to exercise. And if you're not thin and you don't exercise then to spend money getting thin and uh, not eating certain foods and uh, not doing certain things. And so uh, that's how I see the connection to neoliberalism, uh, how it's enacted on the body and in particular, how it's enacted upon bodies that don't conform to thinness or to the um, ableism of, of the world, not just the theater industry. And so, you know, those bodies face, you um, even steeper burdens for not conforming. And so in the book, I'm I'm also looking at how there are wage gaps for all of the identities that I write about, there are wage gaps. If you are, for instance, a fat woman, there was a 2015 study that showed that you earn on average $8,000 less per year than your peers. Um, and also despite um, the Media saturation of like wealthy white gay men, um, you know, LGBTQ people as a whole, including you know white gay men, still face wage gaps compared to our heterosexual peers, and um, you know, the the statistics for disabled people in the labor market kind of blow all of the rest of that out of the water because it's so dismal. So in that way, you know, the uh, neoliberalism impacts all of those identities much harsher than those that are uh, normative in in, in the uh, Goffmanian sense.
1: But it also brings a, a really important materialist dimension to musical theater studies, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm biased here because... I do industry studies in my own work, so um, it's one of the elements of your your book that I really enjoyed. I'm, I'm hoping we can now kind of transition to talking about um, three case studies in your book to kind of give listeners a, a sense of the deep dives you provide your readers. And the, the first I'm hoping to look at is Jennifer Holliday as Effie White in Dream Girls. Um, yeah. What drew you to this case study?
0: I was gonna uh, say it's a loaded my, question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, my my obsession with watching her that performance on the Tonys. I mean, I I can't not play the whole thing every time I put it on. Um, so, uh, as I was I was I began um, that section of my dissertation by thinking about the musical Hairspray, and how that was the only. At the you know only role for a fat white girl in a Broadway show, and then I started thinking, well, what other roles are there for fat actors of any race or ethnicity? And the only other leading role uh, that I came up with in in the period I'm looking at was Effie in Dream Girls. And so as I as I got into that, I started looking um, at the record around Jennifer Holliday and. Uh, one and part of part of why I think I was drawn to this is because I actually got to see her play Effie in a 2007 production at Atlanta Theater of the Stars. I was rehearsing for West Side Story there, wow. and um, it was at the time that uh, the production of Dreamgirls was going up. So we were in rehearsal, and they were in production, and we all got invited to the Fox Theater to see her in the show. And it was just such an amazing experience uh, to see her play this part 26 years after originating the role. And she's the association of Holiday with Dreamgirls is so profound that she's mentioned in almost every single review of the show, whether she's in it or not. Uh, There's a headline in in Newsweek when Amber Riley was starring in the West End production in 2016. I think that the headline was essentially, can Amber Riley match up to Jennifer Holliday? So I was really intrigued by that. And then looking back at um, interviews Holliday had done and knowing that she had um, had a lot of weight loss after having gastric bypass surgery and that when she returned to the role there's always this question of whether she's going to wear a fat suit or not. And I became obsessed by that. And I actually felt so vindicated uh, about uh, last, I guess a week ago, there was this article in the New York post uh, to coincide with her holidays run of shows at uh, the cabaret 54 below where they, they talked about um, her wearing a fat suit in dream girls. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating to me that, uh, you know, in addition to my book, 40, uh, 42 years later, Jennifer holiday is still so associated with Effie and with the fat suit, and that it's still part of the public discourse. And, um, you know, I wrote about shows that I love. And, you know, I, my love is not unconditional for these shows, as my research <laughs> found, uh, found me kind of grappling with, the more troubling aspects of what went on backstage in many of these productions. But, you know, I began this project by really looking at at things that I love because you have to, to write a book, you have to have some kind of sustaining passion for for the topic. And, you know, the benefit of writing about Effie and Dreamgirls was that I got to listen to the cast album over and over and over again. And I'm still not tired of it. I will still put it on, <laughs> to the, maybe more than any of the other shows I wrote about. That's the one I listen to the most.
1: Yeah, and I think your passion comes through here brilliantly, right? Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, I first came across Jennifer Holiday in the late '90s when there was that—I um, don't know if you know—that Carnegie Hall Leading Ladies concert they did. Yeah. And of course, she comes out, and the chime starts. You know that kind of that intro chime that lets you know it's yeah. coming, right? and then just kind of like being fascinated to see that song out of its context and then her face right that kind of that jaw that deserves its yeah. own it, it deserves its own um you know compensation just the work it does but I right. mean um and then to go back and see what you're talking about right on on YouTube the uh the original Tony Award performance which um you know every once in a while I think Playbill maybe does like best Tony performances of all time, right? And it's always like number one or or yeah. certainly up there. I mean, how do you compete with that? Um, yeah. And, and to, to put it in this context, I think really brings to light some of the really um, troubling notions of what went on behind the scenes. And I think that readers will, will enjoy, it, hopefully as much as I did learning about, you know, what do you do when Jennifer Holiday leaves the show? Is Effie yeah. now... a a fat character um and and going back to your earlier point how some actresses kind of talked about or you know um understood or presented their effies in in light of this kind of shadow she's cast over this role
0: yeah and you know this is what i was really drawn to throughout the research was this tension between what happens on stage and the show's narrative and then how in many cases that was kind of eerily mirrored in the offstage uh behaviors of people involved. And you know in Dream girls Effie is famously replaced uh, because Curtis, her, her manager/ slash boyfriend, uh, makes her sing back up and then dumps her because, as he says, quote, she's getting fatter all the time. And, and um, you know, so she's replaced with a thinner, smaller voiced person. And that's actually exactly what happened to Jennifer Holliday after she left the show. They replaced her with thinner performers who had to wear fat suits in many instances and who didn't have voices as big as hers. And so I was, I was so uh, intrigued by these, these overlaps and um, it was really fun to look. I mean, I had, I had so much fun looking at all of this archival material, even though a lot of it is so messed up. Every time I found something that was particularly awful, I was like, I have to write about this. Um, (laughs) People have to know. You know, part of the work of this book was bringing together all of these sources that I found into one narrative and, you know, painting. It's like creating a mosaic, you're putting all the pieces together and hoping that it creates a a bigger picture. And, um, you know, so every little bit that I found was so. Exciting, and to to feel their connections happening, it, um, as as I was doing that was was one of the real joys of writing this book.
1: Great, and, and I'm hoping we can now uh, talk a little bit about um, Georges and Alban, the original production of La à Folle. Um, You you alluded to it earlier, right? That this was um you know two straight performers, um, one of whom was a. You know had played Sweeney Todd was the replacement of Sweeney Todd, right? So yeah um it's an interesting kind of um you know thinking about Marvin Carlson's work right that kind of you know for Sweeney Todd to show up on stage as as Albin. Um can you talk a little bit about you know this famous musical about um accepting gay love um and uh the way um that the the performers themselves were talking about the roles they were playing in the show.
0: What really struck me about La Caja Fall is that the, Jerry Herman and uh, Harvey Fierstein and Arthur Lawrence were working on this in the, the waning days of the gay liberation movement. And they had a generational divide among them because Harvey Fierstein was much younger than the other two. And so he had a completely different point of view than they did. And you know, I think that tension produced this wonderful show. And yet, the show opened in 1983. So this is, you know, AIDS is spreading. It hasn't been yet called AIDS. And um, you know, so there, I was so drawn to the fact that you know they were writing this really fluffy romantic comedy at a time of. Uh, terrible fear and stigma against gay men in particular, and and then the the choices that they had to make as a result of this the social environment into which they were bringing this show, and you know, I, I spoke with I interviewed one of the original producers of the show and. Um, you know, he made the argument as as they did back in the 1980s that they didn't consider actors' identities when they were casting the show and they simply went with the best actor for the role. And, and it, while I believe them, I, I think it also has to be said that in 1983 when they were casting this show, there were no out gay actors. Uh, it would have been career suicide for an actor to come out at that time and still hope to find work. So in that way, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at how, I'm charting how the show responded both to the gay liberation movement, the, uh, the impact of AIDS, and then also this. it appears at the moment that we, we switch um, in the gay rights movement from the discourse around liberation to one of equality. And the show was perfectly poised to meet that moment. And I think as with the other shows I write about, maybe maybe La Cage is actually the most perfect example of this kind of ambivalent inclusion that I'm addressing in the book. Because yes, it was the first Broadway musical to feature a gay couple and a middle-aged gay couple at that as its romantic leads. And yet, it, it past two straight men who had as you mentioned both been associated with the, these kind of hyper masculine roles and uh, so you know in that sense there's this ambivalent inclusion and um Harvey Fierstein argued that the uh, that that Alban at least should have been played by a gay actor and he, he later went on to, to see the role, he actually went on to play the role himself on Broadway in the second revival, but before that he did live to see uh, a gay actor play the role. And he said that he felt that I am what I am, the big gay anthem from the show worked better with the gay actor. Mm. And the famously cantankerous Arthur Lawrence uh, was, forced to admit that he agreed with him (laughs) which is quite a win for harvey i think
1: yeah i mean it's um it's amazing to think about the show and and it's in its history within musical theater um you know we were talking about the tony awards earlier and i remember watching jerry herman's acceptance speech when he won best musical right defeating sunday in the park with george right even though um sondheim and lapine had won the, the pulitzer i think by then um and he kind of frames it as in, like, the, the, the tuneful musical is not dead, right? Like, right. yeah. Um, I so, think he
0: said the, the show, show tunes are alive and well or something like that,
1: right? Right, right. Because, you know, and of course, Sondheim has that famous jab about the hummable song and merrily, right? Um, so it, it was an interesting kind of um, artistic moment, but also thinking about it in its political moment, too. Um, and I seem to remember, do you remember reading in the press around the time that Kelsey Grammer was doing La Caja with Douglas Hodge, that he actually had said to Douglas Hodge, like, don't kiss me on the mouth or something? I, I remember reading this, right? And you're kind of like, dude, you're doing George. <laughs> like, how are you being so anxious and homophobic towards your co-star,
0: right? Right. Well, there's this whole history of whether or not George and Alban should kiss. Mm-hmm, and in, right? the, in, in the original production, they famously did not. And, you know, I understand why they couldn't have uh, politically at the time. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I understand it, right? So, and then there's the revival, uh, the Jerry Zachs revival in I think 2003 or or four, maybe. And um, they did kiss in that production, I believe. And then in the, it turns out in the last production, uh, the Kelsey Grammer Douglas Hodge production. There's this moment where it looks like they kiss, but Kelsey Grammer actually like kissed his own hand or something like that. I mean, of course, to find out his politics later after the fact, um, you know, um, has colored our <laughs> uh, our our view of him him in the role maybe, but um, yeah, it's. It's wild to me that you would take that part and then refuse to kiss. and you know it's not like a a deep kiss or something that is required on stage. It's just right. you know, but it, i I was so struck by how many actors would take on roles like that and then refuse to give the character the full humanity that they deserve and you know, I'm going back to the Tonys for Lacage, actually. I write about this in the book how uh, George Hearn refused to do to wear the uh, Zaza drag and to sing "I Am What I Am" on the Tonys that year. So all of the Kajels, the, on, the uh, drag ensemble from the show, come out in full drag and um, do a do a little bit of a number, and then uh, George Hearn walks in, walks on stage in a tuxedo. In um, total, male drag to sing "I Am What I Am," which is in the show sung as Al-Band's, uh drag persona Zaza, and I just felt uh, that it was such a betrayal of the show's values. And you know, speaking of the this kind of tension, it's so odd then to think that that same year uh, on the Grammy Awards, which gets a much much bigger viewership than the Tonys. Um, they sent Walter Charles out to LA to perform uh I Am What I Am on the Grammys. He was the the cover for Alban on Broadway. And he performed on the Grammys in drag. And so it was this real like and on Broadway's own uh home home uh home field, let's say, uh Hearn made this choice not to to do the number in drag. And I, I think that's that's indicative of of a lot about um, the nineteen eighties, about what it was, what Broadway was like then, and um, uh, you know what what certain actors felt comfortable doing and where. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I was enormously fascinated by that. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And and if we can now talk briefly about um, Ali Stroker as Edo Annie in the recent yeah. um, revival, revisal. Oklahoma however we I mean it's not really a revisal right it's just more of reimagining um but uh can you talk about that casting decision um and you know how how might we think about that right I mean I think that you know it's it's a hypersexualized character it's a comic character um and you know I think it 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 brings positive and potentially troubling dimensions to how we think about that show right I'm curious how you kind of think through it
0: yeah, I, I was actually just teaching Oklahoma two weeks ago and um, we looked at On the Town the week after that. And these two musicals in particular uh, are from 1943 and 1944. So the, the final years of World War II. And I think that Edo Annie in Oklahoma and Hildy in On the Town are Broadway musical theaters, horniest characters. And I think it's, you know, th- and, and looking at them in historical context, they're they make sense given women's newfound freedom in America in those years, especially in the workforce and um, and just having a little bit more agency over their lives than previously. and of course you know after the war the 1950s comes and uh, you know the nuclear family becomes uh, dominant above all and we start to lose characters like this, and yet when these shows are revived, it's really risky because uh, you know we're not in that 1940s context anymore. And so, how do you deal with the kind of potentially icky parts of of reviving these hypersexualized female characters? And I actually thought in casting Ali Stroker, uh, who. Who uh, uses a wheelchair, just in case listeners don't know who she is. Um, casting Ali Stroker as Ada Annie was this real casting coup because, uh, you know, this was her second Broadway musical after appearing in Deaf West's revival of Spring Awakening. But, uh, and her first and this kind of um, major role. And, uh, you know, it was revolutionary because it allowed a performer with a visible disability to actually be sexual and to acknowledge that disabled people have a full uh, range of desire and sexual expression. And so it was really liberating in that way. And she had so much fun and joy with those aspects of the role that, you know, for me at least any potential, outdated gender politics felt totally different. And mm-hmm. uh, there was this kind of celebratory aspect to the role uh, that you know it might not have had if they had just cast some traditional uh, comic ingenue in the role. And what's interesting to me about that production and that role in particular, is that um, since Ali Stroker played the role on Broadway, um, when that production toured, Ado Annie was cast with a trans performer named Sis. And then in the recent uh, West End production, which began at the Young Vic and is now going to the West End this spring, um, Marisha Wallace played Ado Annie. And she was actually just nominated for an Olivier Award yesterday. And um, I interviewed her when she was playing Effie in the West End production of Dreamgirls. And she went on to play um, Motor Mouth Maybell in the Weston revival of Hairspray. And now she's playing Edo She She was playing Edo Annie, and now she's playing Adelaide and Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theater. But her career is kind of this marker of, of what kinds of visible uh, markers are now being cast in certain roles differently than before. And so, you know, to get back to Edo Annie, I think it's fascinating that this is the role that Daniel Fish, the director, casts a disabled performer in, a trans performer, and then, um, you know, a, a plus size uh, black woman in. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess that goes also for cis too. But, um, you know, that Edo Annie became kind of the container in that show of these, uh, visible markers of difference from the norm. Um, and of course, in in each of these productions, uh, you know, I have to say that uh Lori was played by black actors. And so there, you know, there were um, you know, Adoane wasn't the only one that the only role who's casting veered from like the, you know, your grandmother's version of Oklahoma. <laughs> But I just think it's so fascinating to think about why this role as the as the container of um, difference, um, and I think maybe it is it is about um, reframing who gets to own their sexuality in this culture, and so it always came off as as less constrictive than it might have. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, and Ali Stroker, uh, you know, is now becoming a big TV star, so it's exciting to see her her rise.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I didn't have the opportunity to see the other performers who took on Edo Annie, but I think one of the things that was interesting compared to, uh, as you mentioned, your grandmother's Oklahoma is not only is Ado Annie in that show, or Stroker's performance of Ado Annie, um, sexual, but she, sexy, right? Yeah, like right. Normally, it's played as more of a kind of like, oh, you know, she's promiscuous, you know, but like, and she really kind of exudes a confidence that comes from this sexuality in a way that, um, in addition to the optics of the role, right, also kind of reinvents the character too. Totally. So as we head into the homestretch and our conversation with Ali Stroker as, uh, you know, um, hopefully a sign of of progress afoot, um, I'm curious what you think about where Broadway's at now in this year, right? I mean, obviously, book publishing requires us to to stop before now. Um, but you know, thinking about um uh a non-binary performer like um Jared Hoffer, whose stage name is Jinx Monsoon, taking on a role that's traditionally a cisgender woman of, of you know matron Mama Morton in Chicago, or um I was also thinking of Bonnie Milligan's performance and Kimberly Akimbo as Deborah. Uh yeah. and in the spirit of your research, I went and looked at the casting notices and they do not mention anything about being a fat performer. Um and I loved that musical so much and she stole the show in yeah. those moments when she's on screen. I mean, you know, Victoria Clark holds holds her own, don't get me wrong. Yeah, but um right. But it, it's it's not about Milligan's body, right? Right. It, it's it's about the character. Um and so I'm answering my own question. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I'm curious what you think about sorry, I'm curious about what you think about what you're seeing now on Broadway in terms of casting. <clears throat> yeah, I am
0: such a Bonnie Milligan fan, and so it's a it's a thrill to get to see her play characters like uh, the the one she played in Head Over Heels and Aunt Deborah in uh, Kimberly Akimbo. I mean, I go I return to her songs in the cast album again and again, and she's so fabulous in the part. And I really hope that she gets a Tony, uh, at least a nomination. Uh, so yeah, it is exciting, and you know. So we have that. And then, you know, as I mentioned before, Broadway relies on the star system. Jinx Monsoon has sold more tickets to Chicago than anybody had a right to expect for a show that's been playing on Broadway since I was in high school in 1997. Um, Like this show has been going and going and going and it's always, you know, relied on stars, but they had really started to get kind of, uh, no shade here, but like, C-list stars to come in. It's not like in the late 90s when it was a hot ticket. And so it was this real coup to get Jinx Monsoon, who's a big star, to do this. And, you know, I, I think it's thrilling. And I um, I love to see the the interviews with Jinx where they're talking about being in this show and what it means to them and that Broadway was always part of their their dream. And... I do think that actually casting a star like Jinx Monsoon in a show like Chicago or any show is is a really great way to get uh, new audiences into the theater, which is something the industry is forever obsessed with. And I, you know, I think the answer is that younger audiences want to see inclusive casting. It's not just that they want to see it, they expect to see it. And so, you know, thinking about Jinx Monsoon as Mama Morton, um, Bonnie Milligan, um, uh, other uh, performers, you know, too many to name right now almost. Um, you know, this is, I think,
1: I'm hopeful that this is kind of uh, becoming the new norm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned the Tony Awards, and I'm hoping that I can ask you quickly about um Uh, an incident that was reported last month in uh, the New York Times in which uh, trans non-binary performer Justin David Sullivan from N. Juliet um, decided to opt out of Tony competition because uh, they felt it's a gendered competition um, and didn't reflect um, their positionality. How do you and your work think through what we're seeing here about this persistence of conformity and and how might the awards themselves be something we need to radically rethink if we wanna create um, a more inclusive um, and diverse industry? Yeah, this is such
0: a, a hot button issue right now. And I was actually reading an interview, uh, an article yesterday that had a, a, an interview with Angela Bassett about this um, at the SAG Awards this past weekend. And she and actually Sally Field, I think both said, you know, while they they understand, I'm paraphrasing, but while they understand the impetus to create um, non-gendered award categories, that's ultimately gonna mean fewer awards are given. And I think, um, so there's that perspective and then there's the perspective that, you know, uh, gender is a fiction and a performance and that, you know, it's ridiculous to have awards doled out by gender. And then there's also the fact that if our our culture is so misogynist, there's the fact that if we do away with gendered categories, it's very likely that the majority of awards are going to be given to cis men. Um, And and thinking about the the SAG awards, uh, you know, several actors made the point that until women, trans, and non-binary characters have equal screen time to male characters, uh, you know this is not um, a fair fight. And so, you know, thinking about it that way just shows how complicated it is. And you know, this is a conundrum. I think I don't, I don't think the industry was prepared to have this conversation. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, thinking historically, gender norms um, are changing so swiftly, uh, I think much faster than norms of sexuality changed. And um, and certainly they're, you know, coming to the mainstream much, much more quickly than before. And so I, I think a lot of people are playing catch up here. And um, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't actually know what uh, what should be done about this because I, I can I can see how all of these sides are um, in tension with each other, and I I don't really think anybody's wrong here, uh, um, which is makes it hard to know exactly what the Tonys and other awards should do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that uh, this might be one of those situations where by solving one problem, you create another. Um, So, you know, for instance, if we do nothing um, that creates its own issues of exclusion. And if we do change the way it's done, that's going to bring other consequences about too. So um, I'm glad that the conversation is happening. And I'm also glad that I don't have to be among the people deciding (laughs) um, how to to navigate this because it's, it's a it's a really evolving conversation, and not everybody is um, up to speed and uh, uh, using the same language even yet. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's still a, a fair amount of education that has to happen for people that don't even understand the concept of a gender binary at all. Um, I also read this great article a few months ago. Uh, forgive me for forgetting the name of the the writer, but. They they argued that everyone is non-binary because nobody wakes up and says, "Oh, I, I'm so binary today." <laughs> you know <laughs> that if we if we acknowledge that the binary is is fake, um, you know, then actually none of us uh, are really part of it. And so, uh, you know, that that's a more academic perspective on it, but I think an important one to to toss into the mix too, especially if we, if we're in this moment of trying to get. People to understand the fluidity of identity, and in particular, sexuality and gender identity, and um, you know, and those aren't the same thing, of course. But um, in terms of casting, I think it's really a challenge because as much as we are having that conversation about fluidity and inclusivity, conversely, there's this kind of rigidity that that arises about who should play whom. And it becomes particularly vexing when it's around issues of gender and sexuality. So, you know, we're at a real inflection point there, and it'll be exciting to see what happens.
1: Absolutely. Um, I I certainly get the reticence to offer the answer, but I think um, (laughs) you're modestly not mentioning that, you know, work like yours provides the history and and the analytical tools to start to have this conversation. And I hope readers will feel that way and industry insiders um, when they come to your work. Um, So my last question, what are you currently working on? Are you continuing on this path or do you find yourself heading in a a new, exciting direction?
0: I am in the very early stages of uh, researching a book about the The rise of virtuosity and musical theater performance in the 1970s. Um, So I've begun by looking at Bob Fossey's Dancing, which is about to begin Broadway previews later this week, a revival of that. And um, I I started looking into that because there was this persistent notion that the show was so hard and that it would be uh, so difficult to dance that it would be unethical to revive it. Mm. And so I've, I've, actually begun in the archive. I've been doing research at the Schubert Archive, which is above Broadway's Lyceum Theater, and looking at stage managers' reports to to tease out why performers were missing shows. And it's not always what the mainstream media would have you believe. So um, that's where I'm at right now. But I, I plan to look at how the standards uh, of virtuosity for all three of the constituent, constituent skills of musical theater performance were leveled up in, in the 1970s. So acting, singing, and dancing. And uh, that'll be uh, preoccupying me for the next several years, hopefully.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, we hope you'll come back on when, uh, when that book comes out. Absolutely. Um, thank you for your time today, Ryan. The book is Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity, available now from Oxford University Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books in the Performing Arts on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.